Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 106 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to be discussing how much does it cost to hike. Pick any activity, uh, and it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's uh, skiing or scuba diving or boating, there are costs associated with, uh, with doing this activity, and hiking is no different. Costs for gearing up uh, for undertaking trips can al- uh, almost be negligible. But at the opposite end of the scale, they can add up uh, quite uh, many thousands of dollars. Where you sit on the budgetary scale very much depends to a great extent on your personal preference, but also on the type of hikes that you're doing. I think it also depends on what you have available to, to spend on gear as well. So it's not just preference. And I think you can do a range of hiking in different uh, price budgets, but for the same kind of hiking. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the things to consider uh, as far as working out what it actually costs to go hiking. We hope you enjoy. There are really three main groupings of hiking expenses that you're going to need to consider, and we're going to talk about these in more detail in just a minute. The first is gear purchases, uh, and this is probably the, the one that most people think about, obviously. Consumables, and that's things like food uh, and delivery expenses if you're doing food drops, and even things like gas if you ha- uh, or fuel for your uh, stove. And the third one, uh, which can be probably the, the biggest variable of the whole lot, is travel. And this includes transport, accommodation, and food while you're traveling, getting to and from your hikes. Now, we when we think about hiking, um, as I said, we often tend to think about the equipment aspect of it, and this is something we are going to talk about in depth tonight. But I think probably the thing you need to factor into this is the actual travel of getting to and from the hikes yourself. Um, now, this again, can be quite minimal. If uh, if your hiking consists of walking out your door, walking a few hundred metres into the local bushland, uh, and that's pretty much all you do, your travel expenses are going to be basically zero. It's really just getting yourself out to where you're going. Um, it may be that you're travelling interstate to go to your, your destination, and I've given you an example here that in 2018, Jill and I did the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail in South Australia. We drove our car a 1,000 kilometres, put it on a ferry, uh, and then on Kangaroo Island we drove down to Flinders Chase National Park and started our walk. And that's one of the most, uh, I think, logistically complicated trips that we've done um, because it wasn't just about... uh, paying for all of that it was about making sure that they connect and what happens if something went wrong because that in itself could create extra cost as well 
Yeah, so and yeah, the, the biggest expense here from a travel perspective was four hundred dollars in in petrol costs. Um, you know, the, the the ferry costs for the uh, the car was reasonably minimal. Um, and if you want to get really picky, you probably need to consider the wear and tear in the vehicle. You know, you, you are driving a vehicle in our case for a roughly about two and a half thousand kilometres over the trip, and that is putting out, it's wearing out tyres. It's you know, it mean, means the car needs to be serviced. Um, so there's additional for cost to factor in there as well. Well, there's an interesting one about that because we could have flown and we did look at flying over. Um, uh, and the the cost would have been marginally more expensive, um, but surprisingly enough, the time that we needed would have been longer, which was a really weird kind of thing when you think about flying. But with all the connections and and those sorts of things, it was actually quicker for us to drive. Certainly, if you're driving somewhere away for a weekend, uh, you know you've got your vehicle expenses, which you know normally you would factor that in is if you're going away for a weekend. Um, you know, just for down the coast or somewhere, just just up to the mountains to, to visit friends. If you're having to fly, this is where the costs start to pick up. We've done Larapenta Trail, I've done Bibbleman Track, and both of those trips involve flying into uh, either Alice Springs or into Perth, uh, getting to the trailhead. Um, you know, driving probably wasn't a good option at that stage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I think um, I, <laughs> those places are a little bit remote, <laughs> and the time to time that you take to to drive there um, probably a little bit long. You find that from an Australian perspective that um, driving or flying tend to be the options that you look at. I suppose you you know depending on where you are, if you're in one of the bigger capital cities, you might have access to trains or ferries. Um, but um, your your options there tend to be generally not too expensive, you know, anywhere within Australia. Travelling overseas tends to be a different sort of situation that you need to consider, and this is where the cost can get quite expensive. Over the last um, uh, 14 or 15 years, we've travelled to South America um, to, to hike to Machu Picchu. We've done Bhutan. Uh, we've gone through um, in Chamonix and in, in France uh, to do some outdoor adventure activities. And the airfares to get to those locations is probably the biggest expense out of the whole whole trip. The actual hiking aspect of, uh, itself is actually reasonably cheap. Um, and I give an example here from a point of view of paying attention to to pricing, uh, and, and this is in some respects a bit of luck. Um, we, when we went to um, Chamonix in France in 2015, I sat down one evening to book our airfares, and, and I just got waylaid and didn't end up doing it, and, and went back the next morning to fi- to finish off the booking, and discovered that the prices had got uh, had halved. Um, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> it doesn't always happen, but yeah, you know, it was quite a large price drop. That yeah, you know, we we were fully prepared for the full price, and just out of sheer luck, if we had a book the night before, I wouldn't have been aware of the cheaper prices and wouldn't have thought much about it. Uh, airfares are really interesting because they do bounce around a little bit, and um, we had been monitoring them for probably a couple of months um, before we went to book, and we figured that they'd. 
you know, gone up a bit, they'd gone down a bit and they were now quite stable. So, you know, that's something to do as well, to just keep an eye on where they're positioned. Um, But as Tim says, we didn't expect that in, you know, less than a day uh, they could have dropped so much. And I think um, I think the thing to to consider here is uh, if you are planning on travelling overseas, we've done an awful lot of travelling over the years um, for various reasons. I was actually born overseas, um, and um, it's the sort of thing that if you are booking overseas uh, airfares, you tend to do it sort of six, potentially even eight months out. Um, you know, trying to book travel within a month. Again, you can be lucky and pick up some really good fares because the plane might be empty, but usually the prices just continue to go up and up in that last sort of six to eight weeks before a trip. Mm-hmm. So it's rare that it's likely to get cheaper. Yeah. And just on that, um, you know, one other tip I think we can uh, give people is book your domestic flights separate to your international flights. Um, once, if you're not living in one of the major cities and you need to go from a lesser city, shall we say, um, or even uh, a country town into a city and then overseas, um, you'll find that you'll really get stung, I think, I can only describe it that way, um, with the domestic flights. So book your international flights and then work out what your connecting arrangements are going to be to the uh, departing airport. The other costing you need to factor in here as well is, um, you know, for, for both our trips, uh, as I said, for, for Lara Pinta, for Overland Track, for Bibbulmun, they all required flying in, going to a, a hotel or motel for at least one night before the trip. Uh, and again, on the same back out again where, you know, you normally finish your hike. By the time you get back to your accommodation, you know, you, you don't quite make or can't quite rely on catching an airfare the same day. So you've normally got a day's grace, um, which means that you've got those expenses you need to factor in. Um, now, as we said, this really does depend on whether you're going overseas or interstate. Um, you know, if you're only doing day hikes, um, never worrying about actually having to travel very far, you're not going to have these expenses. So you can keep uh, the trips and the hiking quite cheap if you want, but that also, I suppose, does reduce the types of experiences that you're going to have. Yeah, limit limits you to to certain types of hiking. Now, the next consideration we're going to look at is consumables. Um, and I've used the saying here, ah, that old chestnut. This is probably one of the biggest causes for arguments on um, the social media groups on the internet about using your own uh, homemade uh, meals as opposed to using commercially prepared dry, uh, freeze-dried food. Now, I've seen people make some really good meals. You know, they've taken virtually gourmet meals, dehydrated them, and they've come up to be quite nice tasting sort of food. And there's there's no argument on that. You have a better option for variety if you do make your own food. But having said that, um, I tend to take a bit of a the opposite sort of view on this. My main meal of the day is certainly dinner. Um, I like I personally do like to have a hot meal at the end of the day, and that's regardless of the time of the year. It doesn't matter. I just, I'm just so used to having a hot meal for dinner. Um, I'd like to continue that uh, tradition when I'm hiking. 
I don't have a lot of spare time to spend making uh, freeze-dried or dehydrated meals at home. I find that um, for me, it's not so much the money, it's the time that's the, the expense that I don't want to give up. Oh, I have to say there's a bit of expertise in there, Tim, that perhaps we don't have to um, take a gourmet meal and, and dehydrate it. But, you know, <laughs> you, you go with the time issue. <laughs> now, I do, I do actually uh, like dehydrating uh, uh, apples and, and pieces of fruit for snacks. That, that for me is something I will do. But generally for the sake of you know, a few minutes, you know, probably maybe even 15 or 20 minutes worth of preparation, Put it in the dehydrator. Come back at the end of the day. You know, maybe turn the turn the pieces of fruit once or twice. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's pretty minimal. Um, I don't have to worry about cooking a meal first and, and spending the preparation time. Now, I'll give you an example here. And again, it's it's going back to my Bibbulmun track hike f- and from two thousand and eighteen. I had thirty two hot meals uh, actually while I was out on trail. Uh, and that cost me roughly about $320, so about $10 per meal. Uh, not cheap, um, but uh, as I said, for me, I didn't have the time or the inclination to make my food at home. The other issue as well with with uh, Western Australia is just one example of they have quarantine regulations. Uh, it's You won't always get picked up on this, but you, you run the risk of home preparing meals and you may end up having them taken off you if quarantine decide that they don't meet their standards. It's a risk. Um, uh, whereas if you have commercially prepared meals, um, you don't have to worry about that. Um, and I think that that was something that we were a bit concerned about when we were um, packing Tim's gear up and we spent a lot of time, a lot, lot of time reading uh, the regulations and uh, there was a bit of interpretation in there as well and there were probably some things that we didn't pack for Tim because we weren't quite sure whether they sat, you know, one side or the other. Um, so, you know, you need to be careful about some of those things because potentially you could get to where you're going and have have your food confiscated. That would be a bit rude. <laughs> I mean, and the thing that Jill mentioned that, as I said, normally I would do, would have done my own fruit snacks. That was something I chose not to do because of the quarantine regulations. I did actually take commercially prepared dried fruit, uh, and at- we we sent it over sealed in the original purchased bag as well. So in the food drops that Tim got, um, he needed to break the bags open and. Uh, decant them into smaller bags. So, you know, we we probably went to extremes, um, but, you know, these things are important. They're in place for a reason. So uh, if we're all about enjoying and looking after the bush, then some of these things need to be uh, part of our own considerations as well. Now, one of the biggest consumable expenses that, again, that people tend not to think about is actually doing postage for food drops. So on Larapinta Trail, uh, we took all our food with us on the plane. Uh, we had them packed up in day packs. Um, the transport company uh, at that stage, the cost was about $30 per drop. Uh, these days, I believe it's actually gone up quite uh, quite uh, marginally on top of that. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, for the sake of, we had three food drops, so we had around about four days, five days roughly per per drop, uh, and that cost us around about ninety dollars. That was a reasonable sort of price. Uh, although we did talk to people who had actually had a hire car, drove up, dropped their own food off, drove back. Now that's an option. Um, now, for the sake of a ninety dollars and a day's worth of driving, um, I decided that uh, uh, it was better off to get the uh, the transport company to do it for us. Now, the other extreme here is doing through hiking. So again, my Bibbulmun track hike, I had three food drops, and the postage cost for the entire three drops was approximately four hundred and fifty dollars. I think you still owe me for that. <laughs> I almost passed out the first time I, I sent something over. I kept saying, but, 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 but it's only going to Western Australia. It's not going overseas. <laughs> now, the issue here, and, and it wasn't something I thought of because I'm, I'm used to um, putting something in the mail and having it turn up in Sydney or Melbourne one to two days later. We went into the post office. We were quoted 10 days to get from Canberra to rural towns in Western Australia. Whether that was accurate or not, I don't know, but that was what we were quoted. Uh, and realistically, um, my first food drop was eight days after I left, so that wasn't going to work. It was, would have been a, it would have risked me getting there and having to wait two days for my food to turn up, and that wasn't going to be an option. So rather than sending it the cheaper option, we had to go for the dearer option. The second option, second food drop, again, the same sort of consideration, wasn't that far after. So that was my own fault. Um, if I had been aware that it was going to take that sort of time, I could have actually gone through and sent it over much cheaper. Um, Look, I, yeah, I think it would have been a little bit cheaper, but I'm not sure, not sure it would have been half the price. And half the time, I did. I didn't quite get that impression, but um, you know, I think you know, err on the side of uh, caution. I think is always a good thing. Um, so it's you know the other question that people ask me is, well, why don't I buy food as I go? And there, there were certainly track towns in Western Australia. Um, some of them were reasonably large. Some of them weren't so large. I. I'm reasonably picky on my food and I'm a strong believer in taking things that you like to eat uh, rather than saying, oh, look, I'll go and buy two-minute noodles because they're cheap and accessible and I can buy them everywhere. Um, I'm not a big fan of two-minute noodles. Um, I like particular types of food. I like my dried fruit. I like uh, particular types of jerky uh, and I'm willing to pay a bit more for it and send it over knowing that I'm going to eat it and enjoy it rather than chancing it to be able to pick up stuff as I go. So, yeah, again, this is one of these things. It's an, it's an expense that I'm willing to pay because from my perspective, enjoying what I'm eating and enjoying what I'm doing has got to be balanced about balanced out against what it actually costs to do it. Uh, and there's, a, there's something that always... Um I guess amuses me a little bit when we see younger people on the on the trail and uh, they've gone to the supermarket before they've headed out and they've got a loaf of bread and uh, a bag of apples and a, a, a bag of bananas <laughs> and I just think, okay, <laughs> I think good on you. <laughs> but firstly, how heavy is all of that? And and secondly, it's probably not the most 
nutritionally diverse. If it's for a few days, it's probably okay. But uh, yeah, I don't know. As <laughs> as we get older, I think we need a little bit more help than that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we would have done that when we were younger. Now, the final thing we're going to look at from a costing point of view is gear. Uh, and again, this is one where um, it really comes down to a number of factors. Now, there's an old saying that he who dies with the most toys wins. Um, I don't think that's a real <laughs> saying, Tim. <laughs> I think some boy made that up. So I tend to sort of fall into that category to some extent, but I, I tend to be also a, a, a hiker of extremes when it comes to equipment. The oldest pieces of clothing that I own and that I still use is seven years old. Um and generally, anything past that, I've worn to death. So seven years is actually a pretty good run for me. At the other end of the scale, I own three tents that are under five years of age, six stoves, four of which I use regularly, two sleeping bags, and I'm looking for a third, uh, and seven packs, four of which I regularly use. I'm not sure this is a list to be proud of, but, you know, keep going. Um, now, keeping in mind that hiking is my thing and that's what I do, uh, I get good use out of my gear and I usually wear it out so nothing actually goes to waste. Um, so the packs that I don't tend to use, um, at some stage I'll get rid of them but uh, uh, you know, I hang on to a couple of things you know, just in case we, we, we've loaned stuff to friends uh, uh, occasionally. Um, so you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that... You know, is it really worth getting rid of or you know, it, it's not taking up too much room? So, um, I thought we had a conversation about putting some of this stuff on, on eBay, Tim, but <laughs> now now you're wriggling out of that one. So, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing that, um, um, as I said, I will find that um, I have a good range of gear ranging from the old to the, to the brand new. So there's something in here for me about – um, you know, the extent to which you're going to use it, um, pay as much for it as you can afford. So if you're going to use it a lot, you know, pu pu push your budget and, and get, get something that's going to be quite good. Um, if you're going to use it once or twice a year or, you know, maybe once every two to three years, then as long as you can, you're going to store it properly and all of those sorts of good things, you can go a bit cheaper and you can go for less. And um, you know, I think I think mixing it up is probably a good a good option for most people. Now, my current pack is just under twelve months of age. It's starting to show a bit of wear, but having said that, it's done around about eighteen hundred kilometres worth of trips. Uh, and you know, given that for most people, that that's probably three, four, five, six, seven years worth of hiking, um, you know, it's it's doing quite well. And I think you know, for my pack, I've still got a thousand kilometres left in it quite comfortably. So, you know, I'll get at least twelve months, if not longer, out of it. The pack that my current pack replaced, which was the previous model, um, sits in my garage uh, with fifteen kilos of rice and towels stuffed in it um, and you know in total it weighs 18 and a half kilos and that's my pack training pack so I can just go out pick it up uh, put it on my back if I'm trying if I'm training for a hike I don't have to worry about assembling everything in there every time I want to use it in my main pack 
Yeah, and that's a bit of a luxury that you have. Um, apparently, you can't ever have too much rice, but you know. <laughs> yeah, if, we, if we're if we're ever desperate, if all of a sudden there's no food available, we have fifteen kilos of rice. Yeah, that's in our right. Garage. That's right. Um, so, I think the main things to consider when you're buying gear, and, I, and we'll talk about different levels in a moment, is function and fit. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts. But they're the two criteria. Buy something that fits comfortably and buy something that that does what you want it to do. Don't buy something that's cheap just because, you know, it's cheap because it's the wrong size or it's cheap because no one wants it. Warning, warning. And it's not going to suit what you need. So, again, I'll, give, I'll use this as an example here, sleeping bags. Sleeping bags that suit summertime temperatures – tend to be very cheap. Um, uh, but if you're going camping in zero degrees or minus two degrees, you're not going to be comfortable, you're not going to enjoy it, and you're potentially putting yourself at risk. So you need to buy something that suits what you're doing. And also suits suits you. So if you're a hot sleeper or a cold sleeper, you know that that's an added layer of complexity around the environment that you're hiking in. So, you know that that they're the sorts of things that you need to consider when we're talking about function. The other considerations, which I think are really secondary, are, are weight versus cost, durability, color, and the feel good factor. I don't know. Color's pretty <laughs> important. Now, there I'll say here: there's generally not just one option, and there's no right answer. Um, I go through and, uh, and there's a, a list of the gear that I use on our website. This suits me really well. It may not suit you, but at least it provides an indication of the sort of things you can look at, and then you can choose what suits you based on your own requirements. Um, from there, other considerations do come into play, um, but really it's it's going to be a matter of personal decision about, you know, does the weight of an item really matter or do you care if it's some some leery colour that everybody else hates and as a result it's cheap? Uh, and I do do that. Some of my hiking clothes are really leery. Um, as a result, they tend to be cheaper because no one wants no one else wants to buy them. Uh, <laughs> but I don't care because I save a bit of money because of the colour. I wouldn't... Sorry, I wouldn't tell the manufacturers that. <laughs> but anyway, they. They, they soon they soon learn. You know, this is why hiking gear comes in black, grey, and blue. Uh, and, oh, and don't forget khaki. Khaki. I will yeah. never wear khaki. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that you know. I I do have some really leery. The colour's called Sahara. They're an orangey yellow sort of colour. Uh, and I, I'm the only pair of these pants I've seen in the country. Uh, uh, there must there must be someone else out there. So if you've got if you've got Sahara coloured pants, we want to hear from you. But yeah, so as I said, I think you know, and I've got another pair that's a it's a bright green colour. So I just don't see people wearing at least not males wearing these sort of colours out on the trail. So we're going to look at sort of the costing that uh, um, uh, as far as you can fit yourself into. Now the first one is no cost or low cost. And this is probably where I'd suggest people start off with uh, when they're just starting to hike um, or that they might only hike once a year or maybe twice a year. Um, while I'm a big fan of buying gear and having exactly the right set of gear, if you're all you're doing is two two-kilometer hikes a year, it's very hard to justify going out and buying dedicated gear. 
have a look in your cupboard at home. Use what you've got available. You know, use a pair of runners that's got a good set of tread on it. Um, again, it needs to be comfortable, particularly if you're walking longer distances. Um, wear a, you know, a good top and a good pair of pants, preferably not jeans. Uh, and if you're hiking in wintertime, avoid using cotton tops. Um, uh, you might need some rain gear, but a lot of this sort of stuff you'll tend to have at home in the cupboards. Uh, and while it might not be dedicated hiking gear, it will do the job for for you if you're only hiking occasionally. Yeah, and I think the other thing is even if you're doing a little bit more than that, um, hiking a little bit more often, there, there's some items in your cupboard that are perhaps a little bit older than other things um, and they, they're still okay but perhaps not good enough to, uh, you know, go out with friends to a restaurant or to lunch um, at a cafe or something like that. So. So they start to become good candidates for wearing out on the trail. And you don't mind then if they do wear out and or they do get a bit dirty or a bit, you know, a bit worn. And I think the other thing as well, I think everybody, every household in Australia has a backpack of some sort. So, you know, you may, if you're only doing a little hike, you might not carry a backpack. You might just carry a bottle of water in your hand. But, you know, most people will have a backpack they can use, um, particularly for the shorter day hikes. From here, we, we've gone what I've called just the basics. So this is when you've either got nothing to drag out of the cupboard because it's all too good or it's just you've just got nothing you want to want to push over to hiking uh, or you're still not quite sure that you're totally committed but you want to start going a bit more up from dragging stuff out of the cupboard. Um, so again, the priorities at this level need to be comfort and fit um, uh, as far as you know, the colour, the, the durability, the weight might not be so great at this stage, but it is comfortable and it does do what you want it to do. Um, if you're new to hiking, you can look at some of the prices of some of this thing, this product and think, why is this so expensive? Why, why are we paying $50 per a pair of socks or $120 or $150 for a pair of pants? You know, you can buy a pair of jeans that are cheaper than that. Uh, why is hiking gear so expensive? And it doesn't have to be, um, but certainly um, you can find that um, uh, in as far as choosing hiking gear is concerned, it really comes down to a choice between weight, price, and durability. And usually you can have two of these three. So if you're looking at cheaper gear, Generally, that means that they might be durable, but the uh, the price and the price might be cheap, uh, but the weight may not be so so lightweight. So, as an example here, my oldest tent, which is actually a two person tent, which has quite a large vestibule, it's actually designed to fit a bike into. Um, not really the lightest weight hiking gear; weighs around about three point two kilos. Um, you know, it's more than double the weight of. Uh, uh, my next tent from there on, um, but it's relatively cheap. So again, if you use tents as a uh, as a good example here, a brand name, high quality, three season, two person, lightweight tent will cost you around about eight hundred dollars. Um, you can get them cheaper on sale, but that's a good indication of where you're going to sit. 
and in some places not not too many where we live but in some places you can hire things like tents uh, and some of the other items that you might need so you know that's also if you're going to that's also if you're starting out and you can see whether you like it or you can test out gear and so on. But uh, you, you need to shop around for that. Not everybody does that. Now, if you look at a, 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 a basic or a budget sort of tent, again, we're talking about brand name, uh, heavier, cheaper option. It will cost you around $200. So the weight of the cheaper tent is probably going to be about twice uh, the weight of the high-grade, high-expensive tent. And this is what you're paying for with the expensive tent. Lots of additional features, lots of, uh, you know, it might be smaller, uh, have lots of little little bells and whistles um, and be and weigh almost nothing compared to paying not much and paying uh, and getting a, a heavier grade tent. Now, I do say brand name here, and there's a reason for that. Well-known mainstream tent manufacturers will generally produce a range of tents. They'll produce a, an upper market and they'll tend to produce a cheaper range. Um You'll buy brands of tents out of the Europe and the US and Australia and New Zealand that um, are able to be bought relatively cheaply. But if you go online, you'll be able to find um, tents that are, are basically knockoff versions um, out of um, uh, the cheap online countries that, you know, for sort of $70 and $80. Um, the, the issue here is, you know, have they been produced ethically? You know, are the people who are manufacturing these things being paid a different decent wage? And if you don't care about that, that's fine. Go for it. Um, but generally, I will try to support brand name manufacturers and suppliers. These are the people that actually develop the technology that help push the new materials into the market, um, that that provide the upper end tent range that eventually filters down into the lower lower pricing structures. And we should say that even if you've got a brand name, it doesn't automatically guarantee that you're going to be sourcing uh, your labour and your materials ethically, um, but you'll at least be able to track it and, and find out a bit about the company and what they value and what's important. So you'll be able to make um, uh, an informed decision, um, but if it's a no brand, then you've just got no hope. The other thing I'd say here about purchasing new gear is um, unless you're, you've left things to the last minute and you have to go out and buy everything tomorrow, if you keep an eye on the online stores and the stores in your local towns and cities, they have sales on a regular basis. It's almost a pattern. <laughs> and in fact, in fact it, it is a pattern. It is a pattern. So as an example, you know that in April you tend to get all the Easter sales uh, and this is when all that, you know, you can get some really good deals. Um, so, but there are other times of the years, year as well where things come on special. Yeah, and it's it's related to the seasons and it's related to um, uh, not just the latest styles but sometimes the latest colours. And we, we notice this uh, quite a bit with uh, some of the jackets that are available in Australia. We know that overseas... They're available in, in a bigger range of colours, um, but in Australia you find that the style won't change from year to year 
but the colour range changes slightly from year to year and that's kind of the point of difference. So if you don't mind wearing last year's style or last year's colour, um, you can get some really good good gear for good prices. The other option you've got at this sort of point is buying items secondhand through the online social media forums that will sell gear, uh, through um, uh, 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 eBay, through other other online stores, and you can you can generally pick up gear. You know, I wouldn't necessarily buy clothing secondhand online, but you know, the big three tents, packs, and sleeping bags. Uh, they're, they're the things that are going to cost you the most, uh, and buying them secondhand, particularly if you know it's a reputable, reputable resource or you can go and look at the product before you buy it, um, it's a good option. Now, at this level here, if you're buying new, and I and I'm, suppose what we're looking at here is for overnight hiking trips. So we're talking about a tent and a sleeping bag and a sleeping mat and a stove as well. You're probably looking at roughly at around about $2,000 all up if you're purchasing new. And that's just a rough indication. Now, Stepping things up a level, and we're now talking about mid-level gear, not the cheapest, not the best, sitting somewhere in the middle level of the gear. Um, at this point, you know you're serious about hiking, um, and you want to get something just a bit better quality. It might be slightly more comfortable, slightly lighter, uh, it might be slightly more durable, uh, but you don't necessarily want to go all the bells and whistles. Um, but yeah, basically you've decided hiking's for you. Now, pretty much you're buying the same sort of stuff. You're just getting extra features uh, and, as I said, a, a, a slightly lighter gear overall. So at this stage, we're talking about the same sort of uh, you know tent and pack and things like that and sleeping bag that will take you down to, say, zero degrees Celsius. Uh, and this will cost you roughly around about three to $4,000 all up. Uh, now, again, it's going to vary from individual with what you buy, but that's probably a good indication of pricing. And the thing about this is that you don't have to spend that money all at once. So you can build up your kit over time, uh, trade out some older things that, you know, you've been using for a little while or yet had, you know, started life as a, as a different, for a different purpose, um, and build it up as you go. And in fact, that's probably not a bad, uh, bad thing to do because it means that, um, your gear will start to wear out at different times. So that's the other uh, perhaps trap that uh, sometimes can happen. It's it's a little bit like um, we were talking about the renovation on our house, which is um, just over 10 years old now, and, and we're noticing that things, things only last for 10 years. The problem is that everything's only lasting for 10 years and we're starting to replace a few things. It's like... How old is that? Oh, that would be ten years. Um, so yeah, so stagger it out, and uh, you know that that'll make your budget go a little bit further too. And the other thing with that is some pieces of of, of gear will wear out quicker. You would expect. I wouldn't get ten years out of a pair of pants, as an example, um, but I've got packs. Uh, you know, I've got I've got a pack that's um, that's seven years old now and looks pretty much brand new. Um, I've got um, other pieces of gear that are that sort of age. So some pieces of gear will last that long, others just won't. Yeah. A pair of socks I'm not expecting to last for that long. Or even a pair of um, boots or hiking shoes. Yeah, yeah, they tend to wear out. For me, for me, I'll wear wear through three pairs of uh, of trail runners a year um, on uh, with what what the use I'm getting out of them. 
Now, our next level of gear I've classed as nothing is too good for me. Um, and at this stage, you know exactly what you want. You're looking at all the top level gear. You're looking at the stuff that's the best of the best where money is no option. Uh, at this point, you're starting to really hook into the electronic gadgets. So you've got things like GPS with two-way texting options. Um, you've got carbon fiber tracking poles. You've got ultralight tents. Uh, so the weight of your gear has dropped dramatically by this stage, but the price has also gone up proportionately. Um, or you might be an ultralight hiker who doesn't have a lot of pieces of gear, uh, but the gear that you've got is very lightweight, but it also tends to be a bit more expensive as well. Um, you've got pretty much got every piece of gear that you can imagine. Um, uh, and, and typically at this stage, um, if you've been hiking for a while, you know exactly what you need uh, and you've bought the gear to suit exactly what your uses are. And, and I think this is also uh, a little bit back to the beginning around function as well. Um, uh, Tim is a very uh, high-tech adventurer. Any sport, any recreational activity he does, he has to have all the latest bits and pieces and and all the right technology. Um, I don't, <laughs> not because he's carrying it, um, because it's just not my thing. Uh, I remember years ago when we were uh, scuba instructors, I'd stand there kitted up with the absolute basics um, and was very streamlined and Tim would come along and there'd be bits hanging off everywhere. Um, that's just his thing. Uh, so his his gear was much more expensive than mine because he was wearing much more of it. Um, so... Again, it depends on the style of hiking, um, but I went through and costed out my gear uh, just for tonight's podcast, and my kit, and it doesn't include everything I own, but includes everything I would take on a multi-day hike, is around about $6,000 all up. Uh, now, given that I, my two-way communication, my Garmin Explorer, is roughly around about $700, that's a, a chunk of it. Uh, I've got a tent that's a reasonably expensive tent, uh, a sleeping bag that's a reasonably expensive sleeping bag. So those particular items do take up a disproportionate chunk of that that amount of of money. Uh, but D they're but all. Does that include the food too? Because that there'd be a lot of food in there too. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't include the food. So you know you're going on a uh, a seven day hike, and the food has to be added to that sort of pricing as well. So um, it's. Again, from my perspective, I'm hiking quite regularly. Um, I'm doing um, a couple of thousand kilometers of hikes a year. Um, and as a result, um, for me, that having that lighter weight gear, uh, it's less stress on the body. Um, and it means because I am doing a lot of solo hiking, uh, if something goes wrong, I've got the ability to communicate uh, with Jill and Jill can sort of see where I am. Um, it provides a bit of surety at, at that from her point, her perspective. So it's it's the sort of thing that, uh, as I said, I do tend to have a lot of. Uh, I am in that upper end of the the gear range, uh, but for the start type of hiking that I'm doing and the amount of hiking and camping that I'm doing, um, you know, per hike it's probably not as bad as I'm not just hiking once a year. Okay, so. What it comes down to is there is a 
wide scale of budget as far as what it costs to buy gear and what it costs to go hiking. Um, and really where you sit on this scale is going to be very much an individual thing. Um, you know, you might buy a set of gear and it will last you 10 years and that's it. You might turn over your gear equipment every 12 months, uh, either because you're using it that often, you're wearing it out, or because you want the newest and the, and the latest gear. I think that another thing about that uh, in terms of the turnover time is you need to take care of your gear. And if if you're the kind of person, and people, you know, sometimes don't, um, but if you're in that category, then uh, it's not going to last um, as long as you ex- you know, you're wanting to, if you're not, if you're not drying it out after a, a, a wet weekend or you're not cleaning it or storing it properly or whatever it might be. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, it's uh, sometimes, you know, you think I'll just chuck it in the cupboard and I'll get back to it. And then two weeks later, if something's, you know, your tent's gone mouldy because it's been sitting, sitting in a damp, damp area, just picking up, picking up all sorts of rubbish. So most hikers are going to sit somewhere in the middle of this scale that you know, you'll find many hikers will have a few, expen- a few expensive pieces of gear. They'll have a, a, you know, a number of pieces of mid-range gear and they might have a number of pieces of budget gear. Uh, it's rare you get someone that sits you know, down the cheapest end or up the most expensive end. It'll be somewhere in the middle of that. Our suggestion here is take the time to think about what you are doing as a hiker, uh, whether you really need the gear, um, and as we said, importantly, that it fits and does the job that you need it to do, uh, and whether it can do more than one job uh, might sort of make a difference as well. Um, so as we said, really, it's there's no right one answer, and it's your choice which way you go. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. If you want to go through and have a look at the written version of this podcast, go to our website, uh, www.australianhiker.com.au, and we'll have the link in the show notes of the podcast if you want to read this podcast. Our next regular episode in two weeks' time is fire and hiking. Uh, A lot of people like having a fire when they go camping and hiking, and we'll look at the options and alternatives for that. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. As always, you can listen to this episode through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And if you have the chance, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.